Hello, and welcome to the Lisa Congdon Sessions, a podcast for creative folks about living and working with more intention, curiosity, and joy. I'm your host, Lisa Congdon. Lisa here. I just want to thank you for supporting my podcast and being a loyal listener. I am so grateful to you. To show my gratitude, I am now offering 15% off at my online store. Visit me at lisacongdon.com to shop colorful archival art prints, stationery, desk accessories, home goods, and more, all at 15% off with code PODCAST15 at checkout. That's right. Get 15% off of all of our products at lisacongdon.com with code PODCAST15 at checkout. Link to the shop in the show notes. I am so excited to introduce you to this week's guest, my friend, Marcy Alvis Walker. Marcy is a writer, thinker, and activist. She is the creator of the popular Instagram feed, Black Coffee with White Friends, where she writes about race and dismantling Christianity's legacy on things like human rights and mental illness. And on the flip side, she also writes about inclusion and intersectionality. In this episode, Marcy and I talk about her unconventional background, and then we settle in on the notion of embodiment both this idea that many people, people of color, queer and trans folks, disabled folks and others, destroy parts of ourselves to fit into conventional society. And that healing that means intentional embodiment of all of who we are. This process can feel uncomfortable and painful, but it's important work nonetheless. We talk about her own experience as a black woman and her experience in being the mom of a trans kid. Marcy is an incredible human being and embodies radical honesty, curiosity, warmth, and love. Let's welcome her to the show. Marcy, I am so thrilled to have you on the podcast today. We got to meet in person this summer at a writing retreat that we both attended, led by the amazing Roxanne Gay and Tressie McMillan Cottom and Debbie Millman. And I was there with my best friend, Jen, and you were there with your friend, Shay, who I also know. And it was just this really beautiful experience to be together and learn and share. And we actually met for the first time there. We followed each other, but got to meet in person. And you, you write about race and also about sort of, I don't know, from my perspective, it looks like unraveling and dismantling Christianity and its legacy on human rights and mental illness. And on the flip side of that, you also write about inclusion and intersectionality in our spiritual lives and in our lives in general. And so I'm really excited to dive into all of those topics with you. And this notion of embodiment, which is top of mind for you right now. and for me as well, basically, you know, what we embody as human beings and how sometimes we destroy or compartmentalize parts of ourselves to survive in the world. 
But before we get there, I like to start my conversations by understanding a bit about my guests' origin story. So you just wrote a memoir, which we'll talk about later. So you don't have to, you know, basically recite your memoir, but let's do the truncated version. So tell us a bit about your life, sort of like major events or circumstances in your life that sort of led you to become a writer, like led you to be this person who not just writes, but writes about all the things that you write about. Yeah, that, that is a really interesting way to talk about your origin story. My origin story starts very specifically. I am the ancestor of enslaved people. And it's important that that's part of the journey because so much of that part of my narrative was intentionally left out, not just from schools, but even in my own family. It's something that wasn't discussed. My mother's father was enslaved. That's not that big of a leap. He was born into it. So I think when we think about slavery in this country, we usually think that it's generations and generations removed. But for me, it was very near. I never, I met him when I was young, but I didn't know him because I think he died when I was a baby. And this is your grandfather. My, my grandfather. So this is a great, great grandfather. And you and I are around the same age. We're in our fifties. So you're not that old either. I'm not that old. And people have asked, they're like, are you sure? I'm like, yeah, that's what he was as a young boy. And then his family became sharecroppers and became coal miners. And so that's really a huge part of my story is that there's this unstory that never got told. And my mother was the daughter of Jim Crow. So that was her lived experience. She grew up in West Virginia which was not part of the Confederate States. It was part of the Union. But the part of that story that's interesting is that West Virginia had been a part of Virginia, and it was the Civil War that split that state. And so while the state was split, the mentality was still very Jim Crow-ish. And my mother desperately wanted to escape that. So she migrated to the North. And so my origin is I'm from a people who never told their story. I never got that story from my mother. I never got that story from my grandfather. I never had any sort of conversation like that. As a matter of fact, when I was researching for the book, I realized that the death of Dr. King happened on April 4th, 1968. And I was like, oh, my sister would have been turning seven. My sister's birthday is April 4th. One of my oldest sisters, I have three. And I have four older siblings. I called each and every one of them and said, tell me about that day. None of them had a story. None of them can remember anything significant about that day. I mean, my sister, whose birthday it was, was shocked to know that her birthday was on the same day that Dr. King was assassinated. All these years, my sister is, I'm 53, then that would have made her 61, 62. So all these years and no conversation around that, no story. No one could say, oh, I remember we were putting up balloons and the news feed came out. So many other people, I would be in rooms with people who had stories or their parents had told them a story, particularly in the Black community. 
my family didn't have a story, even though we had a significant event of our own that day. And it's not like my parents didn't know, you know, like they had a TV. I'm sure they knew, but these are the kinds of stories I didn't have. And then to add to that, we were one of the first families in our community. My sister's brother and I were one of the first African-American families to integrate a school district in Ohio. And so all that backstory, we were kind of just put into the school without any sort of grounding of why we were the only ones and what racism was, you know, and my sisters and I have just recently started, and my brother a little bit, we've just recently started talking about our different experiences in school, the things that happened to us, because we didn't. We didn't come home and say this was sad or that happened. There was no conversation about race. We were warned about where it was safe to go, and we were warned about our particular behavior. So my origin story is that. And so I've been chasing stories, I think, ever since I was a little kid, I noticed certain silences, particularly for my mother's mental illness. And it was diagnosed as schizoaffective disorder late in life. And so we went through years and years and years of no diagnosis. And because there was no diagnosis, there was so little naming. And because there was no naming, how do you tell a story if you can't name what it is that's happening? So I think that might be why I write the stories that I do, why I ask the questions that I do. And coming up in the church where you're told over and over again that your questions are not welcomed, that your wondering is sinful, that all that you're owed is the life and the air that you breathe and nothing more. And you're a kid with questions, right? You start to make up your own stories. Yeah. It seems like you have just an enormous amount of curiosity. So whereas some people might accept the fact that they don't know and, you know, sort of live their entire lives, not really understanding the richness of their history, not knowing caused you to want to know, right? And to start to ask questions. Yeah, And so how did that curiosity lead to writing for you? Because I've done a lot of research on you and I know that (laughs) you were interested in writing from a pretty young age. Yeah, yeah. I I made up stories my whole entire life. I was, you know, quite the storyteller. I would go to school and I tell stories about my mom that weren't true. But I didn't realize that what I was doing was creating narratives. So if a kid said, why don't you live with your mom? Because I went to school and lived in a neighborhood with my grandparents during the school year. So kids never met my mom. And I would say, she's a fashion model in Europe. and She's away all the time, which wasn't true. But I couldn't say she was away at a mental facility because I didn't know what that was or how to name that. Or someone would ask where my dad was. And I said he was a rancher in Texas and he had a bunch of horses. Who knows why (laughs) these particular stories or what trauma will create, but I think I was creating stories. And then as I got older and having a child, I wanted to have true stories to tell them about where we came from and our legacy, particularly when we moved to Texas. So we moved to Austin, Texas. I wasn't prepared for a Bible Belt existence. You know, I came from a parent 
My mother used to smoke a joint and read the Bible and smoke a joint and invite the Jehovah Witnesses in and like, you know, offer them some. (laughs) Like I came from this very like free exploration in that sense in my mother's home. And the Baptist church that my grandparents took me to, there were no questions, but there was a lot of Holy Ghost dancing. There was a lot of, you know, amen and people being very expressive in their bodies and the choir and all that. And so I don't know. I went to Texas and it was all about discipline. And I, it was very strange to me. It was all about wearing modesty clothing and making sure your kids, making sure the outside didn't get in to your child. And I was like, well, I don't even know how to raise a kid that way. So when things start to happen at the small Christian school that I put my kid in, I really wanted them to know my feelings about the things that were being said on campus. And at the time, I didn't even know the level of racism that my kid was experiencing. They had denied it. They... Your kid was like one of the only black kids in the school. Is that true? Yes. My kid was born and assigned female identity. And as far as I knew, that's who they were. My kid is now out as trans non-binary gay person. And it's been the most fascinating and wondrous thing. Maybe the biggest answer prayer I've ever had was to know more about God. And it came in my kid. So... This kid who knew that they weren't the things that they were being told was really struggling in all the ways that that kind of suffering shows up in teens. So there was a lot of body dysmorphia and eating disorders and all that kind of stuff. So we were dealing with that, but we didn't know what it was. We thought it was maybe it's a divorce, maybe it's this, maybe it's that, but we never knew that it was identity-based because when you're in the Bible Belt, you're given your identity and your role. You're a woman, you support your man, you get married, you have children, you bring them up for God. You're giving these roles and this identity. There is no other role for you to take. And I would hear friends who were single and the biggest hardship of their life was that they were single and not married yet in the church. Because that's a big no-no. Like your job is to get married and present the picture of Christ in the church. So there were just all these, looking back, wackadoo ideologies that I always had questioned. But moving to Texas, really facing them and having my kid have to face them really caused me to dig a little deeper, study a little bit more, find out what was really true and what was made up and just told to us. So there was a lot of that going on. And so I was writing it all down. I was writing letters to my kid. And I had always written, I went to school for English Lit. I minored in writing. I didn't finish, but my four years there were that, all writing and books and reading and story. And so I was doing a lot of writing all throughout my life. And particularly when we got to Texas, really writing down everything for my kid, because I didn't want them to be like, when this monster got elected, what did my mom think? I wanted them to know. Now, honestly, I didn't have to worry because I wasn't like my mom. I talked about it constantly. So they could have they've been like, oh, mom, I know exactly what you thought. But I wanted them to have it. And I wanted the next generation to have it. I didn't want anyone to wonder where I was in this fight. 
And I had to wonder about my family and I didn't want my kid to have to do that with me. I didn't want to be a mystery to them. So I wrote it all down and then I thought, I'll just start writing letters to my white friends that I've never had these conversations with, these white, very conservative moms that were my world at the time because that was the only world that was presented to me and available at that school. And I started a blog thinking I didn't want to, but my husband kept saying, you just need to do a blog. And I don't know if it was part him just like, this is all good talk and everything, but you know, it's not going anywhere in these four walls. And I can't just be the only one absorbing it all. So um, I did the blog. Yeah. Well, and obviously he believed that you had something important to say and he was encouraging you to share it as well. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It was he wasn't like an eye roll or anything like that. He was like, I've never heard this. Why don't you write it down? Like, why are you just telling me? You know, like, I, what am I going to do? You know, like, you need to share this. So I launched a blog and I did the Instagram feed so I could tell people when I was posting on the blog. I set my goal to have 30 followers. That was it. I thought if I could have 30 of my closest friends follow this, that would be amazing. (laughs) What happened after you launched and you were sort of writing about these kind of difficult topics? Like, how did these white friends respond? I know for a fact you have a lot of (laughs) devoted followers who really learn a lot from your writing, but, you know, they were your first audience. What was that like? Well, those 30 30 friends that I thought would follow did. And I would say those 30 probably no longer follow me. um, It got to be where I realized, and that's two things. I don't fault them in it. I really don't. If you don't tell people who you are when you meet them, it's not their fault that they don't know who you are. Like, they were like, she's a black woman who's like me. Mm -hmm. I didn't tell them anything different. I didn't exhibit anything different. And when things popped off, I didn't speak up and say anything different for a very, very long time. And so when the time came that I did, their shock at it, I'm not surprised that they were shocked, you know, but I think I'm more shocked that they weren't curious. They weren't more curious or that didn't, they had no imagination around that. They really didn't. It, it was a no-go. So, and that's not for every single one, but a great many. And family members too, not just friends, but, you know, family members, the same deal. And I think for me, it was a relief because I no longer had to pretend to be something that I wasn't, which is a fully assimilated white cultured person, right? And I came from a background where I remember once for Thanksgiving, I had gone to school and there was an assignment where the teacher said, tell us what you had for Thanksgiving. I think I wrote a blog post about this years ago. And I told them we had macaroni and cheese. We had chitlins. We had sweet potato pie. We had sour cream, pound cake. We had a seven up cake. We had a red velvet cake. We had turkey. We had ham. We had, we had greens. We had green. I was going on and on and on. And this little boy was just like, she's lying. They didn't have all that, you know? But that was, I'm like, oh, you don't even know, right? (laughs) 
But as a little kid, I was like, okay. And he was like, what are chitlins? You know, like the questions were more about, they weren't impressed that we had all this food. They were disgusted by it, which I didn't understand why that was. And so when I was telling my mom the story, my mom said, instead of my mom saying, baby, you just be you. My mom said, you don't need to tell everybody everything. And that stuck with me for years. So code switching became a much more comfortable place for me because my mom said, don't tell them everything. Don't tell them everything that happens in your house. They won't get it. They won't understand it. That is for us. It is not for the world. And so I didn't share anything that was that I knew my white friends weren't doing. Christmas or summer breaks and you get that assignment. Tell me about your summer break. I couldn't tell them about my summer break. Not really. All I could say is that I played outside. We went to see my grandma, but nothing specific. I couldn't tell them about the block parties. You know what I mean? I couldn't tell them about just typical uh, double Dutch. I just couldn't tell them about the things that were typically black in my black space childhood because I would have to explain it. And it was up for debate if that was a summer thing or even real, I guess. Well, and I'm sure that also kind of led you to tell the lies about your parents and all the the things, right? (laughs) Yeah. Which kind of leads me to this sort of next part of the sort of focus of the conversation today, which is this idea of, you know, kind of what we embody as human beings. And you were telling me a line from Alok Vaid Menem's book, Beyond the Gender Binary. And this is a quote, and it's just something I've not been able to stop thinking about since you introduced it to me. And I actually went and read the book also, which is very short and I highly recommend it. They write, what part of you did you have to destroy in order to survive in this world? And of course, Alak is, you know, coming at it from being a person who does not fit into the gender binary. And so this notion of having had to destroy parts of yourself in order to survive as a black woman in a white world, that has had you thinking about this notion of embodiment. Say more about that, like what you had to destroy and sort of how you've had to work to get that back and how that relates to this notion of embodiment. You know, it's it's a strange thing. I think it's something that I've been looking at all of my heroes and sheroes. I've been thinking about Dr. King. I've been thinking about James Baldwin. I've been thinking about all these writers who wrote and I put Martin Luther King in that category of writing of using words to express an injustice, right? And so I think of James Baldwin, I think of Maya Angelou, and I think my thought about embodiment is, what if they could have fully embodied themselves rather than the movement, rather than injustice, rather than inequality or unfairness? What would they have written had they not needed to explain themselves? how much more embodied would their work have been? And to me, it would have been, it's astronomical, the amount, the weight of it. I can't even imagine a bigger James Baldwin. But imagine a James Baldwin without the need to ever discuss his Blackness Mm. or his queerness. If he were just fully accepted as a human being, what would have been written, right? 
and it's not to erase the beauty of what they've already written, but without that, how much more, we're talking about geniuses, Audre Lorde, how much more genius the work would have been if they also didn't have to carry so much. And so I've been thinking about this word embodiment because I see it often. I started yoga. It's a pitiful start. I'm just going to say that. But I've started yoga at 53 because I've lived my whole life trying to conform this body into a white standard of beauty, a white standard of excellence, a white standard of what it means to be feminine. And to suddenly have to pay attention to my body as it is without any sort of white supremacist, white ideology on it has been hard to embody because I've been told all my life, but my body wasn't a safe place that I needed to embody something different. I needed to embody my American standards, my Christian standards, my standards as a mother, but to embody myself as a fully born woman, you know, in sexuality and in my mind and my feelings and to move around in that has been a scary place to be in, you know, and to write from that place has been quite different. And it's showing up in different ways because now when I write, I'm thinking, okay, say it, say it naked, (laughs) but comfortable in that nakedness. Mm fully grounded in it. It sounds strange. No, it makes perfect sense to me. (laughs) I mean, I don't, I don't have the same experience as you do as a white person, but I do understand beauty standards and, you know, your body also changes a lot when you hit 50 and lose estrogen and also as a queer person. So I get it. And so it's uncomfortable, but what's keeping you in that space? I think because the other way just didn't work. I think because the other way was so destructive. When Alok used that word destroy, they didn't say minimize. They didn't say forget, but destroy. There was grief behind that when I heard it. I was like, I've destroyed so much of myself in order to fit into this normative society, especially in this Christianized faith? How do I become, for those of you who are familiar with the Bible, I wanted to become the woman washing the tears of Jesus with her hair, like that sensual sort of, I know exactly who I am and I don't care who's all around. The idea of what that woman did. So there's a story in the Bible. I'll just tell it real quick for those of you who haven't read it. There's a story in the Bible about a woman. Some people say there are a couple of different versions. One is that it was Mary, the friend of Jesus, sister of Martha. Some people say it was the prostitute. I particularly prefer the sex worker narrative because it's much more salacious in that time to think even though there was a lot of sex work back then, and I don't even know they thought of it as sex work, it's probably just work. But here's this woman who was property. We have to remember that no woman owned herself at that time. Here's this pretty famous guy 
going around and declaring unclean things clean. He's healing and touching people. He's got a posse with him, right? And he has the ear of the Pharisees because they're keeping an eye on him. So like he's got clout, but he's also down in the margins with these kind of marginalized, forgotten people. So I like to think of it like this. Jesus is at a ball in New York. He's at a ball. And when I say ball, I'm talking about like legendary ball. Like he's like, not like Met Gala, I'm talking like Vogue, like voguing down ball. So if if y'all watch Pose, I'm thinking of Jesus in that context. So I think that that's who Jesus would have been hanging out with because that was a very common thing back then. A lot of gender shifting and a lot of different embodiment of sexuality back then. And that would have been the people who have been unclean outside of the temple. And they say that that's who Jesus is hanging out with. So I'm thinking in my life, Jesus is hanging out at the legendary ball at Pose. Like he's like there, right? And he's there and the conservatives are pissed because he's not supposed to be there. He's supposed to be with them. And then when he's actually invited, they're like, well, we're going to invite him to eat. So Jesus gets invited to Lindsey Graham's house. I don't know. Pick someone, pick anyone that you think, any person that just drives you crazy with their walls of exclusion. That's who invited him. And Jesus goes, but he goes, you know, like he's going to pose like a ball, right? He's still himself. And while he's there, imagine a black, beautiful trans woman follows him there. Just imagine for me, just for a moment, takes her hair and crying wipes his feet right in front of the establishment of whoever it is that you picture, Ted Cruz, whoever. That's how salacious this moment is in the Bible. That's how big of a deal it was. So much so that this man says, how could he let this unclean woman, this unclean person touch him? And I, for me, I am trying to embody that uncleanness within myself that somebody else named unclean that has never been unclean because it's not what Jesus says. Jesus doesn't see this person as unclean at all and is welcoming to the moment. And it's kind of sensual, even though back then it probably wasn't thought of that. But because we are so led by conservative rule with our bodies, we've lost that part of human connections. Like if I did that now, if I were to wipe my husband's feet with my hair, people would have a whole bunch to say about that. Like they used to wash each other's feet. I mean, it's just it's a very different nomadic And what we would see as hedonistic, but that was what the community was. They were in their bodies. Right. And so I'm trying to be that kind of a bodied person. Like there's no asking of forgiveness from this person because what does she have to ask forgiveness for? Nothing. She knows it. Jesus knows it. The only person who doesn't know that is the establishment. So I think for me, I've been trying to write towards that kind of existence for myself and for other people, not necessarily with God, but just with one another, just to be able to be that naked in front of the establishment, the established order, 
which I hate that word, but that's how they characterize themselves as the law and order. And to be very hedonistically in my body and in my mind and in my feelings. And if that comes off as being offensive to them, but delightful in the light of this country, of the land, of the stars, of God, or whatever is bigger than myself, I'm so good with it. I'm fine with it because I actually want them to be questioning by what authority I have to do that. Or, you know, if they're not questioning what I'm doing, then I wonder if I'm even doing anything at all personally. That's the point that I've gotten to. Right. Talk about the relationship between what your kid has gone through in the last few years. And I would imagine your teachers for each other, right? Like your kid has been a great teacher to you. You mentioned earlier how profound their coming out has been for you. And I imagine it's very related to what you just talked about. Yeah. And also I imagine it's probably really important to you that you model embodiment for your kid so that your kid knows that they can fully embody who they are without having to destroy any parts of themselves. So talk a little bit about about that. Yeah. You know, when they came out, one of the things that my husband Simon and I said is that if Max, for whatever reason, puts themselves in a closet for some reason, that they don't feel safe revealing who they are to someone, that's fine and good. Max is allowed to show up and process this however they feel. It's not our job to be like, you know, you need to tell this person and you need to call. That's, they need to have autonomy over their lived experience. But what Simon and I vowed is that we never got to go back into the closet on them. So I don't get to show up in interviews and decide, should I tell them if my kid's gay or should I keep it a secret? I I don't get to closet because when I do that, I'm placing my kid back into a closet that they've already said that they don't want to be in with me. So that was one thing moving forward when they started to because when they first came out and I, I say to people, my kid, I don't know. I wish there were a different term besides coming out. It's not my job or my community to be able to rename it. But from what I've experienced with my kid is that it's not a one and done thing. It's not like they said this thing one day and then that was it it's all over you know like they said it and we had balloons and then um that's it it's there's a constant revealing that happens and so they would say the first time that they said that they were gay it was really funny because they said I'm bisexual and I swear I was maybe cooking dinner I was like okay and I just kept cooking dinner because it wasn't like I was just like, okay, that's great. Well, you know what? Funny story, Marcy. I came out in 1991, probably. So when you and I were, you were in college, I was just graduated from college and I didn't tell anybody for a long time, but the first thing I wrote in my journal, because it was the first thing I could swallow and process about myself. Because, you know, back then, yeah. we didn't talk about these things at all. There were no role models on TV. There was nothing. Nothing. And I wrote, I, I still have the diary. I wrote, I think I'm bisexual. And, you know, within like three months, 
I was like, no, I'm not bisexual. But I think that's probably very common yeah. to start there, right? Yeah, they started there. And it was funny because I think that night my husband and I said, I think that they're more, I think that, I don't think that it's just that they're bisexual. We've, we've seen their relationships with people who identify as men or as boys and it's not good. So we were like, we were pretty sure. But within time they came and then we were on the sofa, we were watching TV and they said, I'm, I don't know if you remember, but I did tell you that I'm gay, right? <laughs> we were like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then I was like, oh, did you need to talk about it? Like, I really didn't know because I really was so fine with it. And it wasn't about me being fine with it. It was, it made sense. Like everything fell into place. It's like, oh, this is what it's been. This is what the body dysmorphia has been. This is what the eating disorders has been. This is what all of this has been. Now that we know we can move forward, it's going to free them. And we just saw this kid, like it was like watching a rose bloom. We watched this kid come into themselves, just pedal after pedal after pedal. And at first it was the bisexuality. Then it was, no, I really love women and I'm a lesbian. And then we had a kid that we would watch movies with. And I was a boy crazy teen. I don't know how it was for you, but a boy would touch my hand and I'd be like, are we, is this something like, are we together now like I was that kind of romantic boy crazy and my kid was nothing like that and I had lots of teen girls at my house and they would talk about boys constantly and that's how I was and my kid nothing like and I thought aren't they so mature I just didn't think anything about it's like good for them but Oh my gosh, the minute that they said that they were a lesbian, they could not shut up about women. Like every woman was a possibility. Every woman on TV was beautiful. And it was so, we were so excited because we were just like, finally, we get to see them do the thing that every young person does, right? And so I think watching them speak more and more to the truth of who they were, but really it was when it came to the trans thing, I wasn't really sure. I remember when they said that they were trans and I said, what you mean is that you're non-conforming? And they're like, please, mom, don't tell me what I mean. I'm telling you I am trans non-binary, meaning I am transitioning from female to a non-binary identity. And I was like, I did not know what that meant. <laughs> Thank you very much for teaching me. And then I had the kind of transition from seeing the world in this binary way. And I think what we don't understand is that we think the binary is just about gender and that that's all that matters. But by putting a binary on gender, we've actually placed a binary on everything else because that's the way categorizing works and that's the way humanity works. And so, and that's the way power works. So, you're Christian, you're not Christian. You're holy or you're secular. So there are all these binaries that I kept seeing everywhere. You're a writer or you're not a writer. And if you're a writer or not a writer, it's based on whether you're published or not. You're an artist or you're not an artist. And it's based on if someone bought your work or not. And I was just like, why is it most of life is very much on a spectrum? 
Like there are lots of different ways to be a writer. There are lots of different ways to be an artist. There's lots of different ways to be female, male, non-binary. And my kid is showing me this with simple things like this person's like, I'm like, oh, so you're non-binary. Like the only non-binary person I knew was Jonathan Van Ness from Queer Eye. So I was like, like Jonathan. And my kid said, no, I'm non-binary like me. Mm. And I was just like, oh, teach me. (laughs) So, (laughs) (laughs) So it's been this, I literally see it everywhere now. I see it in creation. I see it in nature. I see it in the stars. I see it even in God, like in scriptures. I'm just like, we have screwed the pooch on this. We have made this like, we have really messed up because some king decided that he needed to own the Bible, basically King James and other leaders. And I forget that other guy's name, but a bunch of leaders decided that they needed to own the biblical text and to have power over it. And because they've had power over it, we have made it a very Western religion, which it never was. It was very Eastern and fluid and embodied and They didn't need to have printed Bibles because it was storytelling and dance and movement and prayer. And we Westerners are not comfortable with that. So I've been just loving the freedom of being able to love something that specifically isn't Christian and see my own human experience of God in it, be it that it's coming from a Muslim writer or a Sikh writer, or be it that's coming from humanist or an atheist. I've learned so much from atheists. I've learned more about God from an atheist than I've ever learned from any pastor. And I think it's a much beautiful world to be in when you allow yourself that fluidity and you take away all those hard lines. Everything is more enjoyable. I couldn't agree more. I, when I was a little girl, my mom used to say, you're so black and white about everything. You know, you screwed me over once you were no longer my friend. You know, I was very, it was the way I learned to understand the world or the way that I sort of like naturally understood the world. I mean, it makes sense, right? Because white supremacy and capitalism want us to want the right and the wrong. Yes. And the good and the bad, right? Exactly. And as I've gotten older and various lessons that I've learned in my life through trauma, through mostly trauma, but also just like being queer and then, you know, getting older, like every important lesson I've learned has somehow been that there is this middle space, right? That is so beautiful and so peaceful and that things that are kind of on this forced binary are actually really can be very toxic and hateful. And I feel like it's kind of a lesson of getting older is relaxing into that middle space. And I, as a human being, I've had to sort of like grapple with that. And it's just this lesson that never ends. I feel like literally every issue I have whether it's in my relationship or in my business or whatever, is just thinking about things as having to be a certain way, right? And having this very tight grip on everything. Exactly. And it's so funny because the, one of the biggest questions I got from family members was when Max, um, we asked Max how they wanted to handle family and Max asked us to talk to them because Max is busy 
becoming. You know, they don't need the labor of explaining themselves. So when we talk to family members, one of the biggest questions that they would ask was, well, won't you miss having a daughter? And it was so weird because I'm like, why would I miss having a label if the human being is like literally still here and so much better without the label? Like, why would I... I could have a daughter, but I have less of a human being. And what you're suggesting is that you're more comfortable with me having a daughter and less of a human being who's less able to be fully who they are because it makes you uncomfortable. And I should feel the same way. And I've tried so hard to find a way to say to them, no, you don't understand. We have this incredible human being that is so much more full. I mean, they're only 20. So, you know, they're dumb in 20, like we all were. (laughs) So let's just be clear on that. It's not like I have the Dalai Lama living here. I have like, I have a kid, but I had a kid who could not go outside. We would have to tell them far in advance of any plans to leave their home. A kid who wore the same outfit over and over again because it was the only outfit that they felt fit. So much oppression that was happening to them on a daily basis that people didn't see because they also were a high achieving kid because they were a straight A kid and they were smart. People thought they were okay, but they didn't know what we dealt with at night. They didn't see the unraveling. They didn't see going to shop for a dress for a school dance and my kid breaking down in dressing rooms. A kid that it was very hard to hug them. When they were little, they would walk around like this with like these kind of paw hands, like so tight in their body. And now to have this kid who is, oh gosh, I can't even tell y'all. It's like a wedding feast every single day when I get a text from that kid living their life. I had texted them, there's this thing that happens in Chicago where the sun sets at this one particular, in between these two buildings and the whole world comes out to look at it. And it's not far from where my kid's dorm is. And I sent them I DM'd them like an Instagram post about it, never in my life thinking they would go, but just to show them, oh, isn't this cool? This is happening right around you. And I'm trying not to cry. 15 minutes later, I got a video of them with their roommates in front of that sunset dancing. This is a kid that I would have to tell a week in advance that we were leaving the house, that, that we had to go somewhere to this kid that's spontaneously choosing joy and basking in the sunlight. Don't tell me that the old way with that label was better. I know what that label did to them. It destroyed them. It destroyed too much of them. And so uh, my, my personal opinion is fine. Um, we have all the pronouns, but really none of us are fully one thing or the other. I mean, We don't come in this world 100% born of a woman or 100% born of a man. We come in this world possessing both ends. So they makes a lot of sense to me personally. 
I choose not to say they because I'm not non-binary and I know that that's a needed. So please don't go out there if you're a heterosexual cis person. Don't go out there claiming they because you think that you're being an ally. You're not. You're just you're appropriating something that's much needed for a lot of people. So don't go do that. But I can stand on that word they and I can make it the truth of the nature of what this godness thing is, be it that your God is Christian, Muslim or whatever, you can't say that something created the whole of the world, but it's only male. Get out of here with that. That makes no sense. That just, it's not, I mean, it's not logical. Yeah. I have this baseball cap that I bought this summer that says God is trans. (laughs) Exactly. It's my favorite hat. And I believe it's true. Yeah. So before we end today, two more questions. One, let's say somebody's listening to us talk right now and they're thinking, I want to embrace the middle ground more. I want to stop thinking about things in a binary, whether it's that they have a trans kid or anything else that's causing them pain that they understand is based in this binary way of thinking. What advice do you have for people who want to embody more of the wholeness of who they are? Like, what are practices that you use that help you stay in that place? I won't call it advice because I I don't know people, but I'll tell you what I do for sure, what's worked for me. And you can try it and maybe it'll work for you or not. But there are a lot of different ways to reach that point in your life. I think a lot of it has to do with me getting older. (laughs) Um, I was a very thin, conventionally attractive person in my youth, in my younger days. Like I was the standard size and less than that at times. And I was exactly what I was supposed to be in that. And I think that when my body shifted and that no longer was possible, I had to figure out a way to be in this new body, right? Because the reality was like, well, you're never going to get younger. So (laughs) you better figure it out, girl, because, you know, it's all going to age. (laughs) So you can keep looking back all you want. You can pull out those pictures and and moon over your delts and your, you know, whatever else, your biceps. I was really big into my arms. (laughs) So um, you can go and talk about how beautiful all those things were, or, or you can look in the mirror and also see that this is beautiful too. How I'm doing that is tricky. It's not something that's like daily, but it's also accepting that I don't have to always feel good about the way that I look, but I do have to feel good about how I'm existing in that place of discomfort. And that to me is what true embodiment is, because it can't be when it's all just good and fine and you feel great. And I feel like body positivity is great and wonderful, but if you don't feel positive in your body, I don't think that should count you out of having an existence. I don't think that all that work should be on you because I think it's a real thing in the society that if you are in a disabled body, a trans body, a fat body, an aged body, it's a real thing in this world to try to exist and move in those circles because that is not what the world wants. Those are things that the world does not want. And so it's not just about you taking up space and being joyful and being like, I'm here and I'm proud. That's great. 
But at the end of the day, it has to be what are you creating from within that space? What creative action do you own for yourself? And for me, that's more of the question these days. And the way that you do that is you have to love every other body as it is. You have to be able to look at a fat body and say that body is perfect as it is. That trans body is perfect as it is. Because you have to stop putting and categorizing people based on the norms and the standards because that's just an oppression for yourself. And so for me, that's what I've been doing. It's to root for everyone. <laughs> and um, That's hard because people suck. And so it's really hard to root or to have compassion for people who suck, but also to have the discernment to know who's worth that kind of energy. And I think the thing is, we spend a lot of time on the people who aren't worth our energy because there are people who don't want to be known in that way. And fine, they don't have to be. They need to be attached to the powerful source of whatever. Let them be attached to that. But there's a lot of love out here that wants to be known exactly as they are. Mm. Find those people and love them exactly as they are, cheer them on exactly as they are, watch the things that you were told as a kid you shouldn't watch. That that was a big thing for me. They were like, you know, as a Christian, you're told, oh, you can't watch that or you can't watch this because it doesn't uphold to some white man's standard of what God is. Fuck that. <laughs> um, quite frankly, I don't know if I'm allowed to cuss on here, but I feel like that's the first thing that has to go. You have to say, I'm going to watch this because I want to see the story of a trans community. You're not going to know if you're saying I'm not going to watch Pose. This kind of thing bothers me so much. I've had Christian friends say they won't watch Pose or Legendary because of the rating. And I'm like, well, who rated it? I don't know who rated it. I'm like, I'm going to tell you who rated it. Some white man decided that just by being gay, you deserve an R rating. That's ridiculous. How does that, how does Pose <laughs> have the same R rating or the same mature rating as Game of Thrones? Literal heads are being slashed off in front of your eyes, eyes being stabbed out, plus orgies, and they have the same rating? Get out of here with that. And you love Game of Thrones. So don't tell me about your very sensitive preferences. You love Game of Thrones. You watch Lord of the Rings. People are murdered constantly in that show, but you can't watch a trans community in the 80s and 90s navigate a horrible pandemic that happened to that community that we ignored, get out of here. I, I don't want to hear that. Or you can't watch Do the Right Thing or you can't watch I May Destroy You. You have agreed to something that someone told you to censor. I don't know. I, I feel like that's a very big part of it. If you're going to embody yourself more, you have to be able to extend that to other bodies. And if you can't, see other bodies for who they are and how they are in the world. I don't know how you know your own story better because for me, that's what worked. It's seeing Max and other stories. Also, what I love about you is that you read a lot and you, like you mentioned this earlier, you read a lot about other religions and other perspectives. And I feel like that has been so 
I mean, people assume that because I'm part of the queer community that I like, you know, I'm also a Gen Xer and kind of like old guard of, you know, I'm a basically an elder in the queer community now. And a lot of us in the elders don't understand or spent a lot of time trying also to have to learn, like, you know, kids were coming out as non-binary. What is that even? Like, exactly. Yeah. Just because I'm part of the queer community doesn't mean that I didn't have to reckon with that and what that meant. I have a lot of conversations with my wife, who's also gender non-conforming, but not non-binary. Like, maybe if she were born today, she might be non, you know, identify as non-binary, but because her lived experience was so different in the time that she was born, she identifies as a woman. And, you know, it's so interesting. And I have myself have had to learn and read and watch so many different things from other people's perspectives to understand that the way I've seen the world, even as a queer person, is not the only way. So yeah, I'm with you on that. Because even as a black woman, I'm like, oh, oh, you mean there are other stories of oppression out there. I want to know those stories. I want to know them intimately. And I think that the thing that I've learned the most is that that's the thing that really frightens institutions is when we carry each other's stories. They really, that's scary. Like when the queer community shows up for Black Lives Matter, oh my gosh, that's frightening. When we show up for a disabled community, when Black Lives Matter shows up for that, that's scary for them because the one thing they want to do is keep our oppression separate and to keep us focused on it. That's right. So before we close today, I just wanted to touch on this memoir that you just wrote and we don't need to talk about it for a super long time, but I was curious if you could just give us a, give us a little story about, you know, what it includes. I know what it's called. The name of it is beautiful and I'm going to let you Tell us what the name of your book is, but it's a collection of of essays about your life. Yeah, it's called Everybody Come Alive, and it's a Jimi Hendrix lyric. And um, it really is about me embodying what it means to be Black, what it means to be a woman, what it means to be holy. So that, that, that is the three sections of essays that I explore, the three topics. And it was a journey. I, I actually wrote this book. I finished it maybe 2019, a long time ago. <laughs> And the publishing house I was with was a very conservative publishing house. And when Max came out, I told them Max came out and that I would be talking a lot more about that. And they had already told me that that was a deal breaker. And I had said that that was fine because I didn't know that the queer community story, the gay community story was also my story. I thought that I could just compartmentalize my Blackness and not worry about anyone else. And then when Max came out, I realized, oh, when you fight oppression, you can't just fight it for one particular group. You have to be about all the groups who are oppressed. So lesson learned, hard lesson. I lost my contract with them. And it was really a sad, dark time. And then (laughs) I got a new contract with a bigger publishing house with Penguin Random House on their Convergent imprint. And it's been a journey. So all that to say, a book that I thought that was supposed to come out in 2019, 2020 is not coming out until 2023 because of my not being embodied. So um, hard lesson, you know, but I think 
I'm very curious about what this book will be in the world. You know, like you write this thing, as you know, you create something. And then once you create it, it's just, it's no longer yours. It's it's whoever purchases it and they get to say what they want about it. And they get to, you know, like you may think, I have a lot of ideas about what my book should be. And I'm trying to slowly let that go. Like I, I'm trying to let it go and let it tell me, let the world tell me what it is. Because... I think I wrote a collection of essays that's a memoir. I think it's about being Black, woman, and holy. Who knows what people will come back and say this book is about. And I'm excited to see the journey that it goes on. It's it's trippy. <laughs> that's all I can say. It is trippy. And to do it in my 50s is weird. You know, because I don't know. I didn't start out doing a memoir, as a matter of fact. The first book proposal that I gave was very much like a, I was like, I guess they just want me to tell people how to not be racist. I don't know. So I wrote that book, but then I started to, like, we would be at meetings and I would mention like something that might, like the joint story with my mom. (laughs) And they'd be like, wait, say what now? Like, tell us more about that story. So it was really a lot of, a lot of that. I would mention a story. I would just say like for one story in the book is my family was hit by a train, like literally hit by a moving train and we survived. And it's a funny thing because if you go on trains, like there's always that sign that says nobody survives a moving train. So be careful of the doors or whatever. And I always laugh because I'm like, well, my family survived (laughs) getting hit by a train. So there's just a lot of stories about that. There's a lot about what it means to be beautiful in the women's section. There's a lot about what it means to be holy and what it means to be good in the holy section, what it means to be of worth in our society. And in the black section, it's really about what it means to be seen, what it means to matter to have representation and a lot of that is my childhood like in all the ways I I never saw representation so I hope I really put it all out there I hope that people can accept what I put out there but I'm not I'm not releasing a book into the world is so hard and I can't even imagine I've never published a memoir so that is probably the most vulnerable maybe not the most but one of the most vulnerable forms of writing yeah so when does it come out what What's the release date? I'll put a link to the, is it available for pre-order? It's available for pre-orders and pre-orders are important people. So please, if you feel so inclined, please do. It's out May of 2023. Okay. The date I've been given is May 30th, but that date has changed a couple of times. So I'm, I'm saying May 2023 to be on the safe side. And in the meantime, I have a newsletter where I'm telling stories that, like, I, I didn't talk about Max in the book on purpose. I did use Max's pronouns in the book. And, like, I went back and changed the whole book and put in all the right, correct pronouns and all the correct names. And that's what a bigger publishing house that understands your journey will allow you to do. I would not have been allowed to do that had I, I could have stayed with that small conservative publishing house but I would not have been able to be honest. And I also would not have been able to honor my kid. So yeah, to do that was really great. But I have a 
newsletter called Black Eyed Stories. And so a lot of the things, like I talked about what it was like to have Max come out. I talked more about my mom's, although I do touch on my mom's mental illness in the book. I, I talk about it a little bit more in Black Eyed Stories. And there are other stories that you just can't fit it all in a book. And I had a very strange upbringing too. So it's a very weird, strange upbringing. So... Well, I can't wait to read your book. And I know in the meantime, I I will also in the show notes link to your Instagram, Black Coffee with White Friends and your blog. So people who are as in love with you as I am can Aww. go read everything you have blush. to say. Thank you so much for joining me today. You are an amazing human being. And just today, like listening to you for the last hour and 10 minutes, I feel like I have had so many epiphanies myself and have started to think about things in new ways. I love how you show up in the world. So thank you for being you. Uh, thank you for having me. It's it's just, I'm so thrilled. I'm going to be, it's going to take a lot to bring me down today. <laughs> thank you for this. <laughs> you bet. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Editing of this podcast by the amazing Gabe Garber. Thanks to Nick Lambert for the original music and to my amazing team at the CoLoop Podcast Network. Please subscribe to the Lisa Congdon Sessions on Apple Podcasts. And if you enjoy what you hear, leave me a review. You can follow me on social media at Lisa Congdon and at the Lisa Congdon Sessions. I hope you'll join me for future episodes. Have a magical day, everyone. Everyone.